0: Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell.
1: I think diplomacy may be one of the world's oldest professions, but it's also one of the most misunderstood. It oftentimes is a quiet endeavor. But the argument in the book is that at this in this era when the United States is no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block, diplomacy matters more than ever as our tool of first resort.
2: The subtitle of
1: your book I found
2: really interesting. So it's a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal. And it's that word renewal. What were you trying to get at there?
1: President Trump didn't invent some of the drift in American diplomacy. That we were lulled a little bit after the end of the Cold War, a moment when the United States was the singular dominant player. It didn't seem as if diplomacy mattered so much. I think after 9-11 and that terrible shock to our system, um, we tended to invert the roles of force and diplomacy. I I think what President Trump and the current administration has done is to uh, vastly accelerate and make infinitely worse a lot of those trend lines and in some ways has hollowed out American diplomacy at a moment when, as I try to argue in the book, diplomacy ought to matter more than ever. (laughs)
2: Bill Burns is one of our country's most distinguished diplomats. As a career Foreign Service officer, Bill served as U.S. Ambassador to Jordan and Russia, as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and as Deputy Secretary of State for President Obama. Throughout his career, Bill served five presidents and ten secretaries of state. He is currently the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace here in Washington, and he has just published his memoir titled The Back Channel a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal. I just had a chance to sit down with Bill to discuss his book, his experience at the State Department, and the key foreign policy issues of the day. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Bill, welcome. Great to have you on the show, and it's great to see you.
1: It's really good to see you, Michael.
2: I don't want to embarrass you, but I worked with a lot of people in government, and I don't think I ever worked with anyone who had your combination of experience, professionalism, and just plain good judgment and human decency. So it's wonderful to have you. Feelings
1: entirely mutual.
2: So, Bill, your book, The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for its Renewal, hit the bookstores yesterday hot off the presses. It is terrific. It's a great read and a great education for anyone interested in the State Department, in diplomacy and its future and in the history of the significant issues um, that you lived through and worked on. So I think it's a must read for anybody in the intelligence matters crowd. So go out and get it. Bill, you tell a tale in the book of your first diplomatic mission. Didn't suggest great things ahead for Bill Burns. What happened?
1: Well, my my career didn't get off to a rocket-propelled start. I was a very junior officer, my first posting at the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan, and I volunteered for what I thought was going to be a really interesting adventure to drive a supply truck from the embassy in Amman to our diplomatic facility in Baghdad. This was a point in the early 1980s when Iraq and Iran were in the midst of a bitter war. It just seemed like an interesting adventure to drive across the desert of Jordan, you know, and all the way to Baghdad. I'd never been to Iraq How far before. Oh, gosh, it it's a long ways. I mean, it's, it's a two-hour flight, so it must be... Yeah, it's like a 14, 15-hour drive yeah. all the way, and in a truck, you're not going too quickly, yeah. and the roads in those days weren't that good. So anyway, the administrative officer at the embassy in Amman, who was this grizzled old veteran, had assured me that the skids were all greased at the border, paperwork's all in shape. Turned out the skids weren't greased. I got to the border... An Iraqi security official on the Iraqi side of the border who bore, you know, a striking resemblance to Saddam Hussein, confiscated the truck, the paperwork and everything else. And so I was driven under police escort. I drove with a police escort um, to Baghdad. Um, To make a long story short, the truck was confiscated, all of its contents, which were unclassified equipment. Um, to the best of my knowledge, neither the truck nor the contents were ever recovered. So I spent the next three and a half decades in dread fear that my salary was going to get docked <laughs> get for docked the cost for this of this equipment. So as I always told more junior diplomats in the succeeding years, you know, even if your career starts with a failure, um, there's hope.
2: So that was your first mission, to drive a truck. Your last mission was Iran-related, which was actually a back channel. Um, Actually, secret talks with the Iranians. Tell us about that.
1: Well, you have to remember, Michael, you and I both worked this issue hard over many years. Um, By the beginning of 2013, the beginning of the second term of President Obama's administration, you know, we had gone for 35 years without direct, sustained diplomatic contact with the Iranians. We faced a huge problem. Uh, We knew the Iranians were expanding their nuclear program. Um, And we wanted to test the proposition, President Obama did, that you could use diplomacy backed up by economic, political, and military leverage to get them to stop uh, moving in the direction of a nuclear weapon. And so we spent the first term of President Obama's administration building up that leverage. It was no coincidence that, you know, Iran's oil exports had dropped by 50 percent, the value of its currency had dropped by 50 percent by the beginning of 2013. So we had their attention. And the time had come to test whether direct... And, and a key point is
2: this is not only the U.S. putting this leverage not, on, right? This is this is the entire world, absolutely. including Russia and China.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, in some ways, especially with Russia and China, quite grudgingly in this period, too. And a number of our allies had to make sacrifices to curtail their imports of, uh, of Iranian energy. So this was very much an international effort. Purely unilateral U.S. sanctions would not have had near the impact um, that that international coalition did, but we got their attention. The one missing piece in the effort was a, a direct sustained dialogue between us and the iranians so that 's what President Obama asked us to do um, through most of two thousand and thirteen. We met in a variety of places with the Iranians in Oman, uh, most often, but also in Europe as well as on the west side of Manhattan, which is one of the few places where you know, the Iranian delegation, five guys with no ties and their shirts buttoned all the way up could blend. Mm. Um, And, you know, these were very complicated negotiations, um, enormous amount of suspicion and mistrust on both sides. But we were able um, to get to the point where we constructed the framework for an interim deal, which froze and rolled back Iran's nuclear program and impose some quite intrusive verification measures. And that set the stage then for the multilateral deal, which we and our international partners concluded uh, late in 2013 with the Iranians. So why, why did those initial
2: discussions with the Iranians have to be secret?
1: I think it was it was a tough call, and I remember as as I'm sure you do, you know President Obama weighing this very carefully. I think there was so much baggage on both sides, so much mistrust that to have tried to carry out these direct discussions in the glare of publicity with all the expectations that that would bring um, would have made it a lot more difficult to make progress. We knew that we weren't going to keep these discussions. Secret or quiet forever. In fact, it surprised me that we were able to keep them quiet as long as we did. Um, But I I don't think we would have made the progress we did as quickly as we did had we not begun at least those quiet discussions. Countries
2: and in other places would have been shooting at it
1: and undercutting it. Sure, the domestic political climate in Washington as well as in Tehran was really charged with lots of people who are looking for reasons to make it impossible um, to make diplomatic progress. Um, and so I think that was the way to, to test the proposition that serious diplomacy was possible. It wasn't going to end in quiet talks. We had to do this with our partners. And this was very much uh, a way, as we saw it, to kind of jumpstart that process. It wasn't a substitute for it.
2: So the nuclear deal itself, you had left government by the time it was finalized, mm-hmm. but I presume you support supported it. Absolutely. That it made sense to you. Yeah. What do you say to those Who argue two things. There's basically two arguments against it, right? One is we should have gotten more on the nuclear side. We should have asked for more and gotten more. And then we should have also dealt with their regional misbehavior at the same time. We should have done a package. What's, what's your response to the both, two well, critiques?
1: First, both fair concerns. You know, my view is that the comprehensive agreement that was reached in the summer of 2015 was the best of the available alternatives for preventing the Iranians from developing nuclear weapons. And I think in that sense, it was quite a good deal. It was not a perfect deal. In my experience as a diplomat over many years, perfect is rarely on the menu. Um, But it was a good deal in the sense that it uh, applied sharp constraints on Iran's nuclear program over a long period of time, um, and it imposed the most intrusive verification and monitoring monitoring procedures ever developed. The second concern about Iran's uh, regional behavior is a very valid one. I mean, as you know, as well as anyone, you know, we've dealt with threatening Iranian behavior, threatening to our interests, the interests of our friends for many years – The nuclear agreement had to be embedded in a wider strategy for pushing back against that behavior, reassuring our friends and partners and working with them. I just think that by jettisoning the nuclear deal, as the Trump administration has done, we actually put ourselves in a weaker rather than stronger position for pushing back. I think we could have gotten the Europeans had we stuck with the deal um, to take firmer measures against everything from Iran's missile proliferation to, you know, the other ways in which it tries to subvert our friends in the Middle East.
2: I also think that had you gone for the whole enchilada, there's no way you would have had the Russians and Chinese with you on the sanctions to begin with.
1: We wouldn't have on the the sanctions in the first place, on wider regional behavior, and probably even on the missile issue as well. That didn't mean that Iran's actions weren't threatening. Of course they were. And we all realized we had to embed this in a wider strategy. I just think that having being able to remove one layer of risk, in other words, an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program from the picture put us in a better rather than worse position for dealing with that.
2: Bill, you spend time in the book talking about what it means to be a diplomat. And I actually think that's really important because I think most Americans have a decent idea of what a soldier does or a pretty decent idea of what a spy does, but I don't think they have a good idea of what a diplomat does. So walk us through what it means to be a diplomat.
1: Well, the first thing is I absolutely agree with you. I think diplomacy may be one of the world's oldest professions, but it's also one of the most misunderstood. It oftentimes is a quiet endeavor. It operates in back channels out of sight and out of mind. But the argument in the book is that at this, in this era, when the United States is no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block, diplomacy matters more than ever as our tool of first resort. What diplomacy is essentially is a way to promote American interests and values in the world short of war, short of the use of force. Diplomacy never gets very far unless it's backed up by all other kinds of leverage, whether it's military, economic, intelligence, development, the power of America's example, which also gets us you know, um, a long ways in the world if, it, if it's a positive one. And so what diplomats do is a form of reconnaissance. It's trying to understand uh, foreign landscapes. That doesn't mean understanding, doesn't mean that you have to accept or indulge the perspectives of other governments or other leaders, but you have to understand them. That's the starting point for good policy. Second, you have to understand your own country's priorities as well. Um, Oftentimes, I think diplomats don't spend as much time making sure they understand their own society and making sure that Americans understand that smart foreign policy um, doesn't just begin at home in a strong economic and political system, but it ends there, too, in better jobs and, you know, more security and a healthier environment as well. Um, There aren't that many American diplomats in the world. There's only about 8,500, you know, Foreign Service officers in the world. Um, You know, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. One of our old colleagues used to say that there were more members of U.S. military bands than there were American diplomats. I have nothing against military music, but, you know, it shows, I think, Tells sometimes it does that there's an imbalance sometimes. And, you know, in the way in which we both resource and support the different tools of American foreign policy in the world. And and, and
2: there's been an erosion in the resources granted to diplomacy over the years, hasn't there?
1: There has been. I mean, I think we were lulled um, at the end of the Cold War at a moment when America really was the singular dominant player in the world. So as a result, the U.S. foreign affairs budget, both for the State Department and for development assistance, dropped by almost 50 percent from 1985 until 2000. You know, there have been different efforts and and successive secretaries of state have worked hard to make the case for more resources for the State Department. But in general, that's been a tough case to make. Um, You know, there are relatively few uh, diplomats serving overseas. Um, You know, we don't have military industries in the United States that congressmen can see as in their self-interest. But none of that is a defeatist argument. It just means that we need to work harder to make that case to Americans.
2: Um, Bill, one of the many interesting things you say in the book, has really caught my attention, is that there are two kinds of speeches in foreign policy, frameworks for action and substitutes for action. What do you mean by that? And can you give us a couple of examples?
1: Yeah, well, the one example I cite in the book was a speech that one of our old bosses, President George W. Bush, gave, I think, in June of 2002 about the Palestinian-Israeli issue too. And That was a moment when I think um, the administration was increasingly focused on Iraq and, you know, the developments that led up to the war in Iraq in 2003. And so, you know, my impression at that time was the speech was less a a framework for serious immediate action on the Palestinian-Israeli issue and more a kind of substitute, a way to sort of buy some time on that issue while the administration focused on what it saw to be the higher priority which was Saddam Hussein's Iraq.
2: And your argument would be that we should have more of the former frameworks for action and fewer of the of the substitutes for action.
1: Yeah, I mean ideally I think especially when a secretary of state or a president is making a speech it's it's to help people understand the case for you know for taking serious action as opposed to just as a way of buying time.
2: Bill, you acknowledge in your book the doubts among American citizens about, I guess, both American leadership in the world and the value of diplomacy. How do you think about those views on the part of a really not insignificant number of Americans? And how do we go about starting to change those views? Because we're not really going to get anywhere unless we do that.
1: And it's a really important question. And I think, you know, it's It's ironic in a way, given the difference in their worldviews, that both President Obama in 2009 and President Trump in 2017 were asking a lot of the same questions. I mean, they understood there was a disconnect between lots of American citizens and all of us in the Washington establishment. It wasn't so much, in, in my experience anyway, that most of our fellow citizens need to be convinced of the importance of disciplined American engagement in the world. Their question is whether we in Washington are capable of disciplined leadership. And there's just too many examples. Iraq in 2003, I think, is the classic example, but examples in administrations of both parties. And so I think it's really important to to recognize that disconnect which exists and then try to make the case in lots of different ways. The State Department, just to be self-critical about my own institution, never has done as good a job as we could have when we help facilitate a big business deal overseas you know a big sale of aircraft that contributes directly to the creation of jobs in, you know important parts of the united states to to help draw that connection for people in our own society and the same is true in lots of other ways whether it's in terms of the physical security of the united states environmental security and lots of other ways and so it's not just the state department it's obviously elected political leadership in any administration it's members of congress too State Department also, to be self-critical, you know, over the years has never done as good a job as we should have at work in the Congress by comparison to the intelligence community or the Pentagon, who yeah. are, I think, much more active. But I think the
2: critique is, I mean, I mean, you're focused on the State Department, but the mm-hmm. critique is really about the American foreign policy establishment. And mm-hmm. we have not spoken mm-hmm. to the American people about why this is important and, and how it should be done and why it, why it is in their interest that we do it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Michael, and I think we tend sometimes to be patronizing about it, too. You know, the the argument is, well, trust us, you know, we know better how to navigate the world. And the truth is there have just been too many examples where many Americans have seen indiscipline rather than discipline in the way in which we match ends to means. And I've always felt that whether you're a president or a secretary or a senior intelligence official or a senior diplomat, if you can't explain a policy to people, then there's generally yeah, yeah. a flaw in it. Yeah.
2: Bill, the Middle East, you spent a good chunk of your career there. What ails it and what can we do about it?
1: Well, I think the, you know, the dysfunctions in the Middle East are going to be with us for a long time to come. And by that, I mean in lots of societies in the Middle East, in particular in the Arab world, you know, a sense that lots of people have of indignity, you know, that they are deprived of political and economic opportunities, that their leaderships take advantage of that as well. And so it, it creates really fertile ground. That crisis of governance at the core um, creates re- really fertile ground for extremists. And whether the acronym is, you know, ISIS or a new acronym in the future, you know, there people will take advantage of that as well. On top of that, you've got a whole series of unresolved regional conflicts, you know, whether it's between Iranians and Saudis or Arabs and Israelis, and you've got a bunch of predatory um, external players as well, you know, who try to take advantage of, um, you know, the fragilities and the dysfunction of the region. So you have to be pretty clear-eyed, I think, about all of those kind of fundamental structural problems. I
2: just want to stick with the Middle East for a second here, Bill, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. How important to getting the region right is getting that right? And what would you like to see the Trump administration roll out when it, when it rolls yeah. out its plan?
1: Well, I think it's an issue that still matters, uh, both to American interests and to the future of the Middle East. I would be the last person to argue that it's right at the core of all of the fragilities of the Middle East. As I said before, I think there's a crisis of governance. There's all sorts of other conflicts that enter into this. But it does matter. It matters to Palestinians in terms of their legitimate aspirations for a state. And it matters to Israelis because I think what's at stake is the future of a healthy Jewish democratic state. Because if you look at the reality that sometime in the next decade, in the areas that Israel controls, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, Arabs are likely to be in a majority it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain that kind of a jewish democratic state without a two state solution and you know lots of people predict the, the demise of the two state solution i don't know whether that's occurred yet but it's it's certainly coming much closer so i think it deserves attention of any american administration i think it's a good thing that the trump administration you know has focused on this issue i think the concerns I have are first, the approach seems to be based on the assumption that you can just deal with one party. There's no real dialogue with Palestinians. It seems to be based on the assumption that you can, in a sense, negotiate over the heads of the Palestinians and build on what is a common interest between lots of Sunni Arab states in Israel with regard to the threat posed by Iran. I think that's a useful thing, but it's not a substitute for Palestinians and Israelis negotiating. There's another flawed assumption, I think, that somehow you can use the lure of economic opportunities to get people um, basically to neglect what have been you know, long-term political aspirations. And so for all those reasons, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical of what I hear about this approach, but I do think there's a sense of urgency to dealing with it. Again, it's not the central issue in the Middle East, but it does matter.
2: And I'm also really interested in what your view is, Bill, of how we should have handled the Khashoggi incident.
1: I mean, I think um, that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, especially a murder carried out in a Saudi diplomatic facility, clearly, at least in my view, um, on the authority of the highest levels of the Saudi leadership, is an awful thing. Um, and it seems to me that we as a government ought to have been much more direct than it seems to me that we were not only in public, but in private as well, about the depth of our concern. Now, that's not the same thing as throwing the U.S.-Saudi relationship overboard. It's a relationship that matters cold-bloodedly for both of us. But it just seems to me that we should have used that horrific opportunity to push the Saudi leadership, and in particular, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, much harder than it seems to me we have so far to do some other things that are not a favor to the United States, but very much in Saudi Arabia's self-interest, like stop the war in Yemen, which I think is creating opportunities for the Iranians uh, rather than reducing them. I think we should use it to push much harder um, to end what has become a kind of pointless conflict, political conflict with Qatar, yes. last person to, you know, defend every guttery action. But this is distracted from concerns about Iran and other regional issues. And I think we also should have pushed harder um, in the direction of easing political repression in Saudi Arabia and releasing some of the people, including young women, um, who have been detained there um, over the course of recent years. Our message, it seems to me, the Saudi leadership sh- could should be, of course, we'll have your backs against legitimate external threats, whether it's from the Iranians or anyone else. Of course, we'll you know, support Vision 2030, Mohammed bin Salman's very ambitious program at social and economic innovation. But we want a two-way street in the relationship, and we're going to be quite honest about our concerns about overreach, whether it's in the region or domestically. So, Bill, in your book, you
2: talk about Libya, about Gaddafi's decision to rid his country of weapons of mass destruction. Um, you talk about it from the point of view of, of here's an example of diplomacy actually working Which is kind of interesting in respect to what's going on with North Korea, right? And I'm wondering how you think about this non-traditional approach to diplomacy that the president has taken with this wickedly hard problem.
1: Well, you're right. It's a wickedly hard problem. Both of us are butted our heads against that wall. And I'd be the last person to argue on North Korea that we have a pristine record of accomplishment, you know, over the last uh, quarter century or more. So um, I've never taken issue with, you know, what seems to be unique about the president's style. In other words, dealing directly at the highest level with Kim Jong-un. My concern has not been about talking directly to one another. It's about talking past one another. And diplomacy, as, you know, events of recent weeks has made clear, is hard work. Um, And you just have to be very careful that when you're offering up something to Kim Jong-un has wanted um, so much for so many years, and that is the stature that comes with dealing directly with an American president, not once but twice, um, that you're getting something for it and that you're cold-bloodedly looking for ways in which you can um, begin to freeze and roll back North Korea's missile and nuclear programs. In one of life's ironies, especially with this administration, If you could get a deal with North Korea that resembles the interim deal that we got with Iran at the end of 2013, which froze and rolled back their program, I would argue at least that's a significant step forward.
2: Isn't that ironic?
1: It is, (laughs) yeah, but diplomacy is full of ironies.
2: (laughs) The subtitle of your book I found really interesting, particularly the last part of it. So it's a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal, and it's that word renewal. That I found interesting. What were you trying to get at there?
1: Well, I think um, you know, lots of us, you and I, can point to examples in administrations we worked in of real diplomatic accomplishment of talented, you know, politically elected leaders and secretaries of state and diplomats and intelligence officials who produced good things for the United now, States in terms we just of about. Libya example, Bosnia, lot, lots of lots of other lots ones of over the years. I do think, however, that. You know, the President Trump didn't invent some of the drift in American diplomacy, that we were lulled a little bit after the end of the Cold War, a moment when the United States was the singular dominant player. It didn't seem as if diplomacy mattered so much. So resources suffered, focus suffered. I think after 9-11 and that terrible shock to our system, um, we tended to invert the roles of force and diplomacy. I think what President Trump and the current administration has done is to vastly accelerate and make infinitely worse a lot of those trend lines and in some ways has hollowed out American diplomacy. At a moment when, as I try to argue in the book, diplomacy ought to matter more than ever for the United States and the world. So that's what I meant about renewal. Um, We have experience of what's worked in diplomacy and what we need to do is understand what's at stake on the current international landscape, understand the significance of diplomacy as a practical tool, and then, you know, give it, I think, the priority that it deserves. So you think we
2: were too quick on the military side post 9-11? I mean, setting aside, so, setting aside Iraq.
1: Yeah. Oh I think I think uh, first you never get very far in diplomacy without the leverage that comes with the American military the American intelligence community there was no way in which you were going to l- use diplomacy to deal with the problem posed by al-Qaeda or terrorists you know across the middle east so there was no substitute for a very forceful reaction to that too what i think however is that in iraq 2003 is the classic example of this that, you know, we tended to think that, you know, force was going to produce outcomes and diplomacy, you know, tended to become the kind of under-resourced afterthought in that episode and in some but others. even on
2: terrorism, even on terrorism, yeah. right, um, there is only one way to deal with a terrorist who already exists who's trying to kill you, right? Right. But but there is the issue of stopping the creation of terrorists right. in the first place, which is a hard problem. It is. Um, we can't do it alone. But we really never invested, I thought, right enough in it. No, um, I think, and that's diplomacy.
1: I think that's right. And that's, that's the business of prevention in a sense. And, you know, the truth is the surgical triumphs that, you know, the American military can be justly proud of. The surgical triumphs even of the intelligence community and the military, like bin Laden's, you know, finally bringing bin Laden to bringing a measure of justice to to 9-11. You know, those are, are the kind of triumphs that people can see and understand. Prevention is kind of like dentistry. You know, it takes a lot longer. It's less visible as well. But that's what we have to engage in. We have some successes. You look at the experience of Colombia, for example, in the last two decades. Administrations of both parties invested over the long term in, you know, creating a much greater sense of stability and working with smart, courageous local leaders. And so there's not every instance is not going to yield those kind of results. But I I do absolutely agree with you. We need to focus more on the prevention side of the challenges that we face. Bill, two final
2: issues I want to talk to you about. The first is Russia. Mm -hmm. You served as ambassador uh, to Russia, ambassador in Moscow. Tell us about Vladimir Putin. What what makes him tick? Um, how does he see the world? How does that drive him? How do you think about that?
1: Well, I've always thought that Vladimir Putin, in my experience over the years, is a combustible combination of grievance and ambition and insecurity. Grievance, in a sense, born – and this is not unique to Putin. You find lots of people in the Russian political elite who have this view – of an acute awareness of a Russia that was flat on its back in the 1990s, a sense that the West, and particularly the United States, took advantage of that. Again, this is their perspective. I'm not trying to justify it. And that, therefore, once Russia began to rebound, surfing on high hydrocarbon prices during Putin's first two terms as president, it you know, it was in a position where it could push back. It was no longer the 98-pound weakling on the beach. And, and, you know, Putin has been determined over now almost two decades leading Russia to do two things. One is to restore the power of the Russian state, because he's deeply mistrustful of his own citizens and his own political elite, and to restore Russia to the table of great powers in the world. He knows, he's smart enough to know he's playing a relatively weak hand, especially compared to the United States, but he's tactically very agile. And so he'll take advantage of opportunities. Um, And he's grown increasingly self-assured over time. I remember when I presented my credentials as ambassador at the end of the summer of 2005 in the Kremlin. And, you know, the Kremlin is meant to intimidate foreigners in a sense. So you you come into these great halls in the Kremlin with massive ceilings. You walk down a very long corridor, these two two two-story bronze doors, and you're waiting to present your credentials as ambassador for Vladimir Putin to walk out. And Putin himself is not a particularly imposing figure. He's about five, six, I think. But this is meant to shock and awe, you know, new diplomats. And it actually succeeds. (laughs) Yes, it works. But I remember I stuck out my hand to shake his hand and present my credentials. And before uh, I had gotten a word out, he said, looking me straight in the eye, you know, you Americans need to listen more. You can't have everything your own way anymore. We can have effective relations, but not just on your terms. And that was Putin, unsubtle, defiantly charmless. um, And that's what we're dealing with. And I think the last thing I'd say about Putin is he's convinced himself that the best way to create space for Russia as a major power in the world is to chip away at an American-led order. And it's also convenient for him because he can justify repression at home by pointing to an enemy at the gate. And so for all those reasons, I think We're going to be operating, at least with Putin's Russia, within a pretty narrow band of possibilities. So how do we deal with him? Well, as I said, first is to understand clearly and without illusions that we are operating within a pretty narrow band of possibilities. I would argue from the sharply competitive to the nastily adversarial. Um, So I think we have to push back um, against, you know, aggressive Russian behavior, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in other parts of the world. But at the same time, we have to do something that's characteristic of managing great power relations, and that is make sure we have some guardrails in the relationship so that our militaries are talking to one diplomats are talking to one another. We don't let collapse what's left of the arms control architecture built up since the late Soviet period. The Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty reached 20 years ago seems about to collapse but it would be a huge mistake, in my view, to let the new START agreement, which deals with strategic nuclear weapons, to expire in 2021 as well. It's cold-bloodedly in our interest to make sure there are some guardrails there. And then there are also going to be some issues for all of our profound differences, like Afghanistan, like Syria today, when it's you know in our own self-interest to deal with the Russians and see if we can't at least carve out some small areas of common ground.
2: You know, we have to remember that even during the darkest days of the Cold War, we were talking to them. Yep. And we were actually making deals with them.
1: We were. And and we were also, I think, we approached it from a position of confidence, as we should today. Russia under Putin is not 10 feet tall. They've got huge demographic problems. You know, they've got a one-dimensional economy because one of Putin's historical failures, in my view, is that he never diversified the economy beyond what's in the ground. He's never really taken advantage of what's in in people's minds, uh, you know, a a very well-educated Russian population. So, you know, Russia has some pretty serious um, structural flaws to address over time. We have a pretty good hand to play if we play it wisely with Putin. And I think the last thing I'd add on Putin and Russia is that while it's really important not to give in to Putin's Russia, it's also important not to give up on the Russia that lies beyond Putin, especially when you look at the reality Sometime over the next decade, Russian and Chinese interests are going to bang into each other. Russians, in my experience, are going to chafe just as much at being China's junior partner right. as they did at being America's junior right. partner after the Cold War.
2: Um, Bill, and then we have China. So Let me read you something from your book, and mm-hmm. I quote, As I neared the end of my diplomatic career, it was clearer than ever that nothing mattered more in American foreign policy than management of the U.S.-China relationship, end quote. How are we doing at managing that?
1: Oh, I think it's it's going to be a long haul. Um, I think what President Trump is trying to do in terms of um, changing the balance of our trade and investment relationship is right and probably overdue to push back against um, what have been predatory Chinese practices on trade, on the forcible transfer of U.S. technology. Um, you know, this is the strategic competition of our age Again, we have a lot of cards to play on this. There are lots of players, our friends, allies, and partners across uh, Asia who share a concern about China's rise. They're not looking to contain China or they're not looking to be forced to choose right now, but they do want to try to ensure that China's rise doesn't come at the expense of everyone else's security and prosperity. That gives us a lot to work for. But what what it seems to me we have to do is not just defensive. It's not just what the administration is doing on pushing back against trade practices, as important as that is. It's also affirmative to lay out a vision and a framework across Asia about the kind of Asia we want to see. That's what I thought in economic terms the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have done, which is why I think it was a big mistake for this administration to pull out of that because – you know, it's, it's hard to fight something without a framework um, in which you can mobilize In my view, the
2: biggest, mis- mobilize biggest strategic mistake it's made so far, in my view.
1: I, I think if, if you accept, as I think we both do, that it's U.S.-China strategic competition is the central issue, this was a really important tool. Um, and we need to invest in partnerships across the region. The U.S. India partnership, which has grown up over the last three American years. Maybe we could have a
2: Trump Trans Pacific Partnership. that, that just maybe, need maybe, to change. That, <laughs> that, would, that, that seems to work. That would yeah. do it. So, so, where do you think we're headed with China on the current trajectory if we don't make the adjustment that you're talking about?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, China, it seems to me anyway, that China's aims are pretty clear. It wants to restore itself to what it sees to be. It's accustomed place as the dominant player in Asia. And it wants to be a global economic peer of the United States. And it's well on its way toward the latter. And the former is not an impossibility either. As I said, we have lots of, I think, very valuable cards to play right now. But the question is, you know, are we going to play them effectively? So I think on on the trade side, we're we're headed towards some form of an interim understanding with the Chinese, which is not going to solve all the structural problems, but, you know, at least begins to address some of them. But what I think we're lacking right now is that wider sense of building coalitions of countries who basically share our concerns and around whom – we can build an environment. So the issue is not so much containing China's rise, it's shaping the environment into which it rises in Asia, and we have a lot of capacity to do that.
2: Bill, you've been great to share your time. and just have one more question. You wrote in your book that the goal of the book is to remind people of the importance of diplomacy and the value of public service. Amid what you said is the distrust and disparagement so willfully sown by so many. What did you mean by
1: that? Well, I think in in the Trump administration, there's been a really disturbing tendency to uh, lump public servants together as members of a deep state, as kind of deep state recalcitrants. Um, And the truth in my long experience, and I'm sure is yours, is exactly the opposite. Exactly. People in the State Department, for example are almost loyal to a fault. They want to be led. They want their expertise to be taken into account. They know it's not always going to be heated. But what you see today, I'm afraid, especially with regard to the State Department, is a situation where not only are budgets being cut and senior, really talented senior and mid-level people are leaving, but you also have the really pernicious practice of singling out individual public servants, career civil service and foreign service, just because they worked on controversial issues in the last administration. You see, you know, we were making painfully slow progress uh, to create a foreign service that resembled a little bit more of the society we represent on gender and diversity issues. That's been put into reverse now, too. So we're doing a lot of damage to ourselves. And I I also think, you know, the image of public service, in a sense, is being uh, so deeply unfairly tarnished right now. There's so many people who are making huge sacrifices in the interests of our country. Um, and that needs to be respected, not disparaged.
2: Bill, it has been an honor to talk with you. The book is The Back Channel. The author is Bill Burns. You will want to read it. Bill, thanks.
1: Michael, thanks so much.
2: That was Bill Burns. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.